Welcome, everyone, to episode 39 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week on the podcast, we're returning to normal. No guests, just me and my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, I know that you're really excited to be peak shill on the podcast today when we talk about David Robert Mitchell's next acid trip under the Silver Lake and then talk about Star Wars celebration in the news section. But before we get to any of that, how have you been? I'm doing great, Scott. Happy Easter to you, first of all. We are recording this on Easter Sunday, so you know, got gotta wish you a happy Easter in observance of the holiday, uh, and you know, much and happy Passover. Yes, much like the Lord, today we get to um, discuss the second coming of David Robert Mitchell, and it's just as spectacular as the first. <laughs> I think we can say. Um, so why don't we just get into it then? Oh my God! That's actually why they released this movie around Easter. Is yeah, because you know, Jesus does make a does make an appearance in some form. No, in the he, movie, he so. does. That's that's very true. I didn't even think about that. But no, real talk though. We watched this movie on four twenty, and this is a very good four twenty movie <laughs> to be perfect. It's it's really a shame that we didn't get high and watch this movie, but we did watch this movie on four twenty. Yes, yes. Uh, so I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Um, thank you for not mentioning what a devastating week this has been for me in sports. We'll move on right past that. Hey, man, they, I will say, man City did win yesterday in, in the league. At, for me, that's the important thing at this point, you know, keeping Liverpool from from taking that title. Uh, anyway, Scott, I've spent, you, you know, we, you mentioned that we watched this together on 420, and I've spent the last 15-ish hours trying to come up with a way to introduce this movie on the podcast. So let me give it a try. Under the Silver Lake is burgeoning auteur director David Robert Mitchell's follow-up to his 2015 indie horror surprise sensation, It Follows. A neo-noir mystery written and directed by DRM, scored by Disaster Piece and shot by Michael Jalakis, is about a man, Sam, played by Andrew Garfield, who spies on slash meets one of his neighbors, Sarah, played by Riley Keough, at his apartment complex's pool one day. When she has disappeared by the next day, Sam's obsession with her takes center stage as he goes on a quest through L.A. to find out what happened to her, following a series of clues that only make sense to him and while claiming a grandiose conspiracy behind her disappearance. As he stumbles from location to location and clue to clue, the movie only gets weirder and weirder. But I think that is enough of a setup to at least get you talking, Scott. So let's hear it. Did this movie reconjure the magic that DRM managed to create and it follows? Or does this movie chase its tail without ever managing to catch it? Well, you know, this obviously I was very interested going into this movie uh, being the huge fan of It Follows that I am. I mean, it is truly one of those like unforgettable experiences um, in terms of my my movie going experiences. The first time that I saw that movie on the big screen, really just one of those movies that like takes you by such surprise and, you know, just overwhelmed me to the point where I really just didn't want to think about or talk about any other movie for the next couple of weeks after I saw it, um, after I first saw it follows. So obviously seeing what Mitchell was going to do after that was very high on my radar, but you know, of course the release of this movie has been, uh, plagued with all kinds of, uh, of stuff, 
because it was supposed to come out last year and it was my most anticipated movie of last year and it kept getting pushed back. A24 kept pushing it back and then, you know, they were going to put it out in theaters in March of this year. And now, you know, we're at the point where it opened in like two theaters and in New York and LA and the main distribution of it is going to just be on VOD. And, you know, all this time, of course, I was reading reviews. I was, you know, really trying to figure out what's going on with this movie. You know, why after the huge success that It Follows was, right? I mean, that that movie is considered one of the best horror movies of the 21st century. And I mean, rightfully so, I think. But in terms also of financial success, it made a ton of money on what was a relatively small budget. And when I heard that he was pairing with A24 for Under the Silver Lake, it seemed natural because although It Follows was not an A24 film, it, it very easily could have been, right? It had that feel to it. Um, and I think after seeing that success, it's not a surprise that A24, being the kind of studio that they are, you know, wanted to get their hands on what this guy was doing next because he is now a known commodity in the ind- independent film world. But obviously, this is a very different movie from uh, It Follows. I mean, this movie has a, has a bigger budget, it has bigger names, and it has a far more ambitious story. And I think, for personally, that's something that I like to see because I think Mitchell is showing here that It Follows was not a fluke and that some people uh, might just want to ride the high of it follows and, you know, try to try to turn out something similar to that with their next effort, you know, stick in the horror realm. But that's not he's not satisfied with doing that. He's really using the trust that A24 and that everyone else has put in him to make, you know, some a, a movie that he really wants to make more than anything, I think, because this is an incredibly ambitious film. There's so much going on. And because of that, it has been incredibly divisive. And I think that's really one of the main reasons that ha- has led to A24 you know, pushing it back. At the same time, I'm kind of disappointed in the fact that they have chosen to do that because, first of all, I think this is a movie that should be seen on the big screen. You know, you mentioned Mike Jalakis, cinematographer, and the score by Disasterpiece, both of whom, you know, also teamed up with Mitchell on It Follows and did spectacular work in It Follows, and they do spectacular work again here in Under the Silver Lake. And, you know, this movie really should be seen on a big screen. If for no other reason than you can just experience the cinematography uh, of Jalakis and, you know, that that score, which is very prominent throughout the film. Um, you can experience that in all of its glory in a theater setting. So, And at the same time, too, you know, it's, a, it's an extremely original movie. While there are a lot of influences going on in the movie, like he's obviously very influenced by people like Alfred Hitchcock and David Lynch and, you know, the novels of Thomas Pynchon. All of these influences are going on, and there's all similarities, you know, to, to movies like Mulholland Drive and Inherent Vice. But it's a wholly original piece of work straight out of David Robert Mitchell's brain. And I think that it's a disappointing to see A24 who has embraced, you know, particularly original films and has had great success in doing so, doing so with movies like Moonlight and Ex Machina and Lady Bird. I mean, these are huge, some of the biggest independent movies of the last decade and Oscar-winning films as well. And so it's disappointing that they have sort of rejected something which, I mean, I, I consider to be, you know, definitely on the same level in terms of originality, if not even going even further than that. This movie is flawed, right? Like, 
that's why it, it's divisive for a reason, because some people just don't really buy into what Mitchell is trying to do here. I mean, the, the mystery is sort of deliberately unsatisfying in the end. And there's a lot of really dark imagery, a lot of, you know, sort of gratuitous sex and violence in certain parts. And it's really just, you know, you described it as an acid trip. I think that's that's kind of right. That's why, you know, we say it's a good movie to watch on 420, because most of the movie, you're kind of just trying to figure out what's going on. No one is going to fully understand this movie until after multiple watches, I think. But I don't think that the fact that there are flaws should take away from what Mitchell is doing here, because, again, going back to the originality thing, I think that I would rather see a director like Mitchell swing for the fences and, yeah, maybe fall a little bit short, but at least he has this ambition, right? And I think that's what we see here, even in the moments that are flawed, even the scenes that are flawed, and we'll talk about some of those, they're interesting still. And they're, you know, there are still engaging scenes. And you know, a huge reason for that is because of David Robert Mitchell's craft. You know, say what you want about this movie and the story and whether it adds up or not, or whether it's, you know, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But I don't think you can honestly watch this movie and deny the craft that. David Robert Mitchell put into this movie. I mean, you know, say what you want about the movie being empty and pointless, but I think there's definitely ideas and messages going on here. And that that's really not giving David Robert Mitchell enough credit because, you know, in terms of like recurring images and motifs and strategic ways that he uses music and stuff like that throughout the movie, it's, you know, he, he's got his hand in everything that's going on here. And I think you'd be kidding yourself to say that, oh, he's just making a movie that doesn't really mean anything. He wants it to seem really highbrow and arty, and he wants people to talk about it and drive themselves crazy talking about it. But this movie doesn't really mean anything. You know, It's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But I, I think that that really is antithetical to who Mitchell is as, as a director. And it, again, the sheer craftsmanship that is on display in this film you know, suggests to me that he deserves the benefit of the doubt in terms of you know the storytelling here, even if for you, it may not add up. And, it, you know, again, I've seen it twice now. It doesn't all add up for me, but I don't think that's the important part. And, and to an extent, maybe the fact that it doesn't add up is kind of one of the points of the movie. And so, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very fascinating movie. We'll get to talk about some more of the plot a little bit later on. We get into spoilers, which I think is really, you know, where this discussion is probably going to have the most meat to it, because there are so many different images and threads and everything that probably deserve breaking down. But I absolutely think that this is something that everyone should see again, even in its flaws. Um, it is incredibly interesting, and it makes me more excited to you know see what David Robert Mitchell does next than I certainly would have been if he had turned out you know something like It Follows again. Because I think you know this shows that he has his toe in a lot of different swimming pools uh, to you know to use one of his popular motifs, and he's not confined by one genre. He has a lot of ideas going on here and a lot of, you know, interesting things to say. And, you know, when combined with that cinematography, combined with that music of Disaster Peace, uh, I think, and, and combined too here with what I think is a pretty spectacular performance by Andrew Garfield, someone who I've never been a huge fan of as an actor, but I think this is by far the best work I've ever seen him do. And when you put all of these elements together, to me, they add up to something that is very weird and very wacky, but altogether wonderful in the end. And I really just can't recommend this movie enough for the sheer originality uh, and execution of Mitchell's vision. 
Yeah, I think there's there's so much to break down there from from all the different threads you you touched upon. I think one, it is definitely a disappointing for A24 to delay this for, you know, almost a year and then ship it out on VOD. Of of course, if you know, it's hindsight's 2020, but if they were going to do this, they could have just done this a year ago and it wouldn't have made a difference. You could say that there's been some hype built up around it just because it's been so long delayed and and then ultimately being shipped out on VOD. That that might actually might have made it more popular in that sense maybe and and it, if i may like it seems like a, a lot of this was prompted by the audience reaction to it and the fact that it was so divisive and that's why i say that i'm disappointed because i feel like a24 is the kind of studio who has shown that they don't really care about appealing to mass audiences and so i think that something like this should be right up their alley yeah i don't i don't know about that i don't know if i agree with that i think that i can't think of a movie that a24 has put out that's like divisive because this movie is divisive not from like a, oh, some people are going to like this and some people aren't going to like it. This movie is divisive from like, you know, who is this movie for really? Like this movie is for a very specific niche of people. You know, someone like you, someone like me, people in LA, people in New York. I think that's who this movie is for. And when it's divisive among your core audience, that's when you're. I think you might have a little bit more difficulty. And I think that I just can't ever see like, I don't even know what a good like your classmates, I can never see any of like your classmates at Wake Forest going to see this movie. It's just not up anyone's alley, especially when it's as divisive as it is. And so when it, when you th- put it in that perspective, like there's no other A24 movie that has been like this where they have put it out in theaters. Like Lady Bird, you know, you could argue that some parts of that, I mean, well, one, I'd say that that movie is for everyone, but there are people who don't like that movie. This movie, like it, it's for your, you know, fi- it's for film Twitter. And when you're, audience is super niche and when film twitter is divided is like divided about it you're like probably not going to be that successful in in theaters and i don't know if like i don't know what their what their strategy is to recoup the eight million that they gave you know drm for this but uh i think that you know there it had a really high per theater average i don't think it's gonna i, I can't decide whether i think it's going to expand because of that or if it's just gonna you know it's it, it had its week before endgame and it's gonna get swept off the shelf now and it's just going to be on VOD uh, again. I don't know what the strategy is for that there. If they're just writing this one off as a loss, but I, I think it's probably worth moving on to another point here, where you know you're talking about you would you would rather someone like David Robert Mitchell swing for the fences and come up with something like this rather than put out another It Follows. And I agree with that. I think if that if those are the two options, you most cert- like you certainly should. I would much rather see a movie like this. You know, I've talked on multiple occasions about how I. Something like Annihilation is more interesting than, to me than you know some other tighter sci-fi movie out there that, that that you don't think about as much. And and so in that sense, I I agree. I think that this movie is really interesting. It makes you think a lot. It probably thinks too much. I do think it's a it's a little bit pretentious in some in some moments. But that's not to say that it isn't also what it's trying to do. So I think that your point about it does all these things and there are these flaws. But part of the point of it might be that some of these flaws are intentional and that it's supposed to you know, not tie up at the end. It's supposed to not quite make sense because it's, it's, I, I mean, it's offering a critique of a certain culture that doesn't really make, doesn't really tie up in the end. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I think from that sense, it's not that you're not, not to give it a free pass on some of the things that didn't work for me, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast. But I think that some of the critiques that I've read just in the past, you know, you know, you know like I said, 15, 18 hours have, have really leveled critiques at it that I'm like, well, no, I see what you're saying, but that's like kind of the point, right? Like, yeah. uh, and, and I think that, that that's a recurring thing that I've seen. And, and again, I, I don't think that that means 
you get a complete free pass, but it also adds to the thoughtfulness of the movie. And uh, at times I think it's a little bit on the nose. I mean, you mentioned the Hitchcock thing. There's literally a tombstone of Alfred Hitchcock in the movie. And it, if that were the only instance of something that on the nose in the movie, you might be like, oh, shrug the shoulders, move on. But there are several moments that are just so on the nose that you're like, so much of this movie is like overly subtle and like overly mm-hmm. complex and confusing. And then there are moments where he, someone just hits you over the head with a baseball bat and you're not like quite sure why. And, you know, that that is what it is. I agree with with everything you said about Andrew Garfield's performance, which we'll talk about shortly. I agree that Jalakis' cinematography really evokes something like those movies that that you described, you know, Mulholland Drive, Inherent Vice, you know, neo-noir mystery thrillers from, you know, the second half of the 20th century. It really evokes that. And I think that the music from Disaster Piece, while being, you know, wholly original, also evokes that that sentiment as well. The production elements of the movie, the technical aspects, both in terms of editing, how it's shot and how the music is is scored and mixed are all things that I really liked about this movie. You know, I mentioned in my letterbox review and while, you know, talking with you last night, how I often think the score is a little bit too overbearing. Again, trying to evoke, I think that, you know, second half of the 20th century vibe for movies. That doesn't mean it always works for me, but I understand what it was trying to do. And I think it did it pretty well, if not too well in, in, in terms of that. As for all the different themes and motifs that that come up in the movie, I you know I really like it. Follows it follows is is the brand of horror that I enjoy watching. You know we talked about it with a Quiet Place, uh, Skid Out. It, I think it's in it's in that genre or subgenre of horror thriller that I really really enjoy and thoughtfulness and and one of the things that I I just am a little bit sad about her that I think whereas a little bit a little bit of a letdown is just how many different ideas he tried to tackle in this movie and creating a much messier uh, final product. And that's not to say that he shouldn't have tried to do that. It's not that I don't like that he did that. It's just, I wouldn't want every single one of his future movies to be like this because at some point I would really like to experience another, another really tight thematic movie like it follows. Not, like th- this movie just has so much, in it that it like you can't it, it's impossible to process it all in, in one viewing and he's even said that like the, this movie is going to take two three plus uh viewings in order for you to even start to get a sense of what's really going on and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but when you're when it, when you make a movie that's purposefully just trying to like confuse you and make things like super convoluted and opaque i don't know that you've like created a good movie and again that's not to say that you can't have elements of of the movie that are super thought provoking and and in like nebulous that need to be put together in multiple viewings, but like 90% of this movie needs to be put together in multiple viewings. And I think that just makes for like a frustrating experience in at least in some ways. And so that's where I think like he's kind of let himself down. I'm really glad he got to make this movie. I'm glad that it followed success allowed him to get a budget where he could make this type of movie. I just don't know that I would want every movie after this to be like this. I, I'd want him to zoom in on one theme or, or or a couple themes and element and really dive deeper in, into those rather than skimming the surface and trying to go a little bit deeper on so many and I think coming up short or at least leaving leaving me a little bit wanting on, on so many of those elements in this film which is ultimately where I think this movie falls short okay I've said a lot we probably should dive in a little bit deeper but any reactions to what I'm saying before we do well yeah just a couple things first of all with the score I think Yes, you're right. It, it definitely evokes movies like Mulholland Drive and, and Inherent Vice and stuff like that. But I think what it's really evoking is like this really old Hollywood, like really yeah. lavish feel yeah. because it's the first orchestral score that Disaster Piece has ever done. And I think, you know, emphasis on the orchestral, right? Because we have strings and everything and it it's, you know, 
again, very lush. And it, it feels like, you know, it comes straight out of the Janet Gaynor movie that, uh, you know, plays a, a role in the plot of this movie of Under the Silver Lake. Uh, and I think that I like that because, and along with the cinematography too, which is really like bright and striking, it's really like antithetical to what is going on on screen, which is a lot of times something really dark or really violent or, you know, sexual, something like that. Uh, it's so, so you're, you know, you're hearing one thing, you're seeing one thing, but really what's going on is something totally different. And I think that he really using the cinematography and the music, he really gets that sort of that there's this sinister underbelly underneath the, you know, shiny veneer of Hollywood, which obviously is not a new idea, but I think that he does, he, he, evokes it very well here with the use of that cinematography and music. And the other thing is that, yes, I agree with you. I think I wouldn't want Mitchell to make this kind of movie every single time out now. But I think what he's kind of done here maybe is he's figured out his audience a little bit with this movie because I think It Follows was probably a more widely appealing movie, whereas obviously this movie is not and is going to, you know, maybe determine... This movie is probably more indicative of what David Robert Mitchell's vision is as a director than it follows was maybe. Uh, so may, you know, I feel like maybe he's using this movie as kind of a test case and saying, okay, here's, you know, what my audience's reaction is to this. And here's how I can use that to shape future movies. And I do think that we will get back to, um, you know, tighter movies, more focused movies like it follows. This movie is always going to be a very interesting part of his filmography, whether it's successful or not. Yeah, I, I think that's right. If he doesn't return to those types of movies and and doesn't prove he can he can recreate the appeal like he did in It Follows, and he's gonna have a hard time getting a budget for a movie because yeah. it's not that A twenty four won't give him eight million dollars again, but if he does this again, then they probably won't be giving him eight million dollars anymore. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he wants to make money as much as the next person, so I think a, 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 as much as this movie may be more conducive to his vision. I think he's definitely going to take into account some of the backlash that this movie got when he's, you know, working on his future projects. All right. Talk about one thing that, you, you know, you mentioned you were pleasantly surprised by, and that was the performance of Andrew Garfield. He plays the lead role of Sam in this movie. And there are so many things to talk about, not just with the performance, but with this character. And we'll, we're going to stay spoiler free until we talk about the plot. But would love to hear your thoughts both on this performance and this wild character in Sam. Yeah, like I said, I think this is the best work Andrew Garfield has done in his career. I th up until now, he's been known for playing like Spider-Man. Yeah, right. You know, pr pretty like protagonist roles. Um, you know, you go back to the social network, I think maybe, you know, he was a little bit of an anti-hero in that movie. But I feel like his performance was a little bit overshadowed in that movie by some of the other performances. But he's not someone that you I mean, he was. Yeah, I mean, Hacksaw Ridge, too. Right. You talk about protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, it, right. He's not someone that you associate with playing sinister or unlikable anti-hero characters, which I think is totally what Sam is. I think this is really where some people have missed the mark on this movie, I think. And, you know, you talked about how a lot of the criticism you were reading and you were like, well, no, exactly. That's exactly the point. And I think this is not something new for Mitchell's work. I think it follows, you know, a lot of people looked at this and they were like, oh, well, it's an STD allegory which I think was totally missing the point and totally really looking at it at a surface level when that movie was really more about sort of coming of age uh, and the specter of adulthood than it was about, you know, sex. 
And I think they're doing the same thing with this movie with the Andrew Garfield character because Mitchell has been accused of like being misogynistic here because this character, I mean, he's kind of a perv and he's really ultra violent and he's not, he's not kind of a perv. He's like yes, he's a he perv. has binoculars and he's and he's spying yes. on his neighbors. Yes, I you know excuse me for qualifying, it, but uh, but yeah. he's very and he's very violent and he you know treats women really as sort of disposable objects. He really objectifies every single female character that he comes into contact with in this movie. But we're not meant to root for him, and I think that's why people what people are missing. Um, you know, the fact that he's the character that we follow, the fact that he's the main character, we're following his quest throughout the entire movie. That doesn't mean that we're automatically supposed to root for him, and I think. Mitchell, you know, makes this pretty clear simply by, you know, making this character do all sorts of despicable things. But also he portrays the character in a really absurd way. And, you know, he is kind of making fun of him in a lot of scenes. The fact that this guy is so obsessed with finding out what happened to this girl that he literally met for one day. And he's looking at the back of cereal boxes and he's, you know, driving all over town and writing all these codes down and everything. And it is, you know, as much as you're also sort of engrossed in what's going on, he's also ridiculous. And I think Andrew Garfield does a good job of bringing like this slightly comic, like stoned, like almost Lebowski-esque like aura to the character. Even in the way that he like runs down the street is he just looks kind of silly and ridiculous. And so I think Garfield does a good job of he portrays the absurdity of this character and his quest, but you're also not missing the point that he is sinister and we're not supposed to be rooting for him and that he's an unreliable narrator and that maybe there's you know something going on here that we're totally not seeing because we're really looking at this movie through Sam's eyes. Uh, and so I, I really think this is an outstanding performance by Garfield. Yeah, to your point it's, it, it, about his past roles and how he's often thought of as this very... He's a, he has boyish charm. Boyish charm, yeah. and that's exactly what he has in this movie as yeah. well, which it, it's so fascinating, right? Like, it, you know, we have the perspective of following him the entire movie and hopefully understanding exactly who he is, but it's also the case that he does have that boyish charm, which is why I think he's able to have these positive interactions, at least at first glance, right, with all the women that he comes across. Uh, you know, you mentioned the all the women that he objectifies, but uh, which is true, which I think is spot on. But at the same time, he does have that Andrew Garfield uh, charm about him. And the fact that this character is charming yet still, you know, a creep or pervert, you know, he borders on, you know, obsessive stalker. And like you said, he meets this girl for an hour or two at most. And then he goes on this quest around the city to find her And, and the way that he treats all the women, that he encounters, like you said, disposable. I, I, I think that's spot on. And I th- and David Robert Mitchell and Andrew Garfield use that in this movie to really create a persona of a character that is nuanced and really compelling, not in the way that it, this person is a protagonist or a hero, but the character and that they're able to paint for you to ultimately critique, I think. And I agree that, you know, one of those things that I was referring to was was definitely that people have called DRM, you know, misogynist by having this character be the focus of the movie. And I just, I don't know how, I don't know how you could watch this movie and think that Andrew Garfield's character, Sam, is is the thought of as like a good person. I, I just don't know how you could watch this movie and think that. So I don't really understand that critique. It, you know, maybe the critique is a couple layers deeper and, and the fact that every single interaction with a woman, it, you know, in this movie with Sam ends up being objectifying 
not that DRM is trying to objectify women, but that it, it's too pervasive. I could understand maybe that critique and that, you know, maybe it would be nice to have one example of a, of a woman who's not like sexually objectified by Sam. But that being said, this movie is told through the eyes of Sam. And ultimately, it, in some ways, it would be out of character for him to, to see a woman differently than that. And And one interesting note on that, I think, is that there's a scene where he is with Tilford Grace's character who plays his friend and they fly a drone over the city and they're like staring at this lingerie model. And of course, you know, they're like objectifying her, but then she starts crying and there's obviously something like personal in her own life that is disturbing her. And like, it's like the second that she starts showing this human emotion, the second that, you know, they start to view her as an actual person and not as an object, like, the moment is completely gone and Andrew Garfield stands up and he's like, all right, I'm going to go now instead of, you know, they were getting revved up to like stare at this woman. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think that that proves that, you know, in the moments where we do show a woman breaking with the narrative of Sam and how Sam views them, that he disengages from it. I think that's I think that's a great point. So I, I know that we can't dive too deep into spoilers yet. So it's probably makes sense to move on to the supporting cast. And I'm sure we will return to this character when we, when we do do spoilers, but but there's really only one other quote unquote lead role, even though she doesn't often really pop up in the movie that much. And like I said, that's Riley Keough who plays Sarah. Scott, what did you think of this character? And are there other supporting roles that you'd love to call out? Because I know that there are quite a few. You've mentioned one already in Topher Grace, for example. Yeah, so a few to note. I mean, I think Riley Keough does do a good job of playing the, you know, the classic Hitchcockian blonde bombshell, right? She's, you know, ripped straight out of a Hitchcock movie. You know, you've mentioned that the influences of Hitchcock are are not subtle in this movie. And I think you're right. And this is another example of that. The one scene really towards the beginning where she and Andrew Garfield interact with each other, she does sort of keep you on, on your toes. Like there's obviously something that's not quite right, even as she's, you know, being flirtatious with Andrew Garfield, but you, you know, there's, you get the sense that there's something not quite right all the way down to this moment where, you know, they see these fireworks in the sky, even though it's the end of summer, they, you know, remark that it's a strange time to be shooting off fireworks. And, her reaction to it is very strange. Um, and, you know, so I think she does a good job of she's she's the sexy Hitchcockian blonde bombshell. But also there's something else going on there. And she's mysterious too. all credit to her. She makes the most of, I think, minor screen time. Uh, another performance that I like is Jimmy Simpson, who is this guy, Alan, that just kind of shows up at, randomly at the parties that Andrew Garfield finds himself at and, you know, kind of helps him with some information sometimes. But He's just sort of a very fast-talking, like, oddball, neurotic character that gets some kind of funny lines that I enjoyed. And I think Jimmy Simpson does a nice job of going along, meshing well with the tone of this movie, with the really, you know, stonery, like, lack of uh, unfocused, you know, tone of this movie. And then the last performance that I, I want to note is um, by the great character actor Patrick Fischler, um, who is only in one scene in the movie. Uh, but I think his inclusion alone is an ode to Mulholland Drive, where obviously he plays, he also plays a small but impactful role. But here he plays the author of this comic book, this zine that Andrew Garfield's character reads called Under the Silver Lake. And if anything, he's just as crazy as Andrew Garfield, if not crazier. Uh, he has all of these conspiracies, you know, stuff plastered up all over his wall. He has this little underground bunker with you know, he's looking for maps on the back of cereal boxes and he has all of these theories about how pop culture is just a vehicle for subliminal messages. And he does a fantastic job in this one scene of playing kind of crazed savant of all these conspiracy theories um, who really sort of clicks with Andrew Garfield's character in the one scene that they 
uh, interact with each other. Um, and I think he was perfectly cast. Uh, you know, again, one of those character actors that pops up in a lot of stuff and, and leaves his mark. I think he deserves credit here for doing a great job. Yeah, no, I, I agree with with lots of that. Riley Keough makes the most of her screen time. I agree. She definitely delivers a very off-putting performance. I mean, almost in every scene that she's in, which definitely contributes to that, to the aesthetic or the vibe of the film that is very off-putting. Like I said, nothing ever really feels quite right. And a lot of that emanates from this character when she is on screen. For me, I don't know if there are any other performances to really call out. There's really just a lot of oddball characters in this movie and it, it fits with the tone of the movie. Yeah. One thing, one other thing I will note here is that uh, there's a band in the movie called Jesus and the bride of Dr- brides of Dracula. Um, and there's your Jesus you know, reference for, for the, Easter. Right. Um, but there's a, there's a song that sort of uh, perpetuates throughout the film called turning teeth. That is sort of the, everything is awesome of this movie. Um, but also maybe has a role in the plot of the movie. That song is, really cool. I enjoyed it. It's an original song for the movie. And if you know, if you're interested in it at all, it is by a band from Silver Lake called Silverstone Pickups. And they're not the actors in the movie, but they actually do perform the song. Uh, And it's on the soundtrack on Spotify. So check it out. There you go. All right, Scott, moving on to the plot. You know, we've managed to talk about this movie for almost 40 minutes without talking about spoilers. No longer. So the gloves are coming off talking about spoilers. Scott, let's jump straight in. Where do you want to start? Well, I think that there are some themes in the movie that are probably rather than getting bogged down in the weeds. I think there are some things that are probably fairly, you know, that we can agree on that are pretty prominent in the movie. And one of those is, you know, what happens really ultimately at the end of the movie um, when Andrew Garfield, he's finally tracked down Sarah's, you know, ostensibly her location to this sort of bunker, which is up by like the Hollywood sign. Um, And, you know, he, he meets these this um man and his three brides uh which you know obviously there's a connection there to to jesus and the ride brides of dracula which is i think so, something that is still remains a little bit obtuse to me um what the the whole you know symbolism is there but you know basically he learns that sarah has gone down into this bunker with jefferson sevens the rich billionaire who is thought to be dead um and that along with sevens and you know the other two brides they're going to ascend they're going to experience this ascension and it's really but really uh you know it's something that only very rich people can afford to do and so i think what we can what we see here is that uh mitchell is kind of making a point about really the the emptiness and the meaningless nature of everyone in in los angeles everyone in hollywood's life right you have like this certain idyllic view of hollywood uh that is sort of you know again represented here by the bright cinematography the really lush music But really, most people who move to Hollywood with big dreams and everything, they don't make it. And I think this is an example of, on the one hand, we have Andrew Garfield's character who really is using this whole quest to find Sarah as a distraction from the reality of his daily life, which is that he does, he's late, he's behind on his car payments. He hasn't paid his rent in months. He's criminally overdue on his rent. He doesn't have a job. And really, you know, he's, he's a loser. Um, and, but he's using this quest to sort of distract him from the reality of all that. Ultimately, he's not able to do that because the quest ends in disappointment for him when, you know, Sarah's in this bunker, she's not coming out. He's never going to see her again. However, the rich people, 
kind of are doing the same thing by this whole through this whole ascension process process they are unsatisfied with their daily lives and so they are using their wealth to you know go through this whole going down into these underground tombs and ascending whatever that may mean it's not really very explained in the movie um but you know somewhat differently to andrew garfield's character like they are that they consider this you know ascension this distraction from life to be fulfilling you know they're down in these bunkers they're having all of this great food and wine and you know making love and all of this stuff um it's like it it almost is like a utopian like place um and so they're they're able to achieve fulfillment because they have wealth uh so i think there's definitely sort of a classist critique going on there too but there's also just this overarching idea about people in hollywood people in la trying to distract themselves with the shiny things that la has to offer when in reality their lives are hollow and, and hollow and and empty you know very cheery thoughts I mean, that's definitely one of the, I think that's one of the easier themes to dissect that these people are, are living boring, meaningless lives. And the only way to really distract yourself is through wealth, which I think is a really interesting statement. It, it, obviously, I think that this is one of those elements that I was referring to way back at the beginning that makes this movie probably really only for those people, right? If Or at least some subset that's that that is close to those people. Right. And and so I think that, the, you know, your average person just isn't going to care about this theme. So I think from that point, the, the theme is definitely an interesting critique, especially, uh, you know, as Mitchell is someone who is in Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and the fact that you can escape. The, uh, you could argue that the only difference between a character like Sam and a character like Jefferson Severance is that Jefferson Severance has millions and millions of dollars and can, you know, concrete seal himself inside this bunker and then just die in six months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that fulfillment is the thrill of, you know, having a terminal endpoint to your life and then quote unquote ascending into heaven. So I think that you know, this in that sense, there's also probably some sort of religious critique as well that, you know, people are, are bored with reality and, and want to move on to some sort of afterlife that in order to give a little bit more meaning to life on earth, they tell themselves exist. And so, you know, that, that's a heavy, <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a heavy critique on, on uh, you know, Easter Sunday to be making. But I think that also is tied into the idea that, you know, this life, at least for this subset of, of our, uh, you know, of, of our community is living, you know, boring, meaningless lives and are, and are you know, not entertained and they need to, you know, do drugs or go on trips or, you know, go to these, you know, drug fueled or alcohol fueled parties in order to, you know, numb the boringness. And then the ultimate fulfillment is through well, is through wealth, because of course you also have to be buying these drinks, buying these drugs, et cetera, or at least mooching off other people who can buy yeah. them. Right. So I think that there's, there's a lot going on with this critique. I, I think, an, you know, another one of the other same is, is the sex and the violence as well. There's one particular character, or I should say, let's actually talk about two. I think we can, we can like kind of mush these two together in terms of violence and sex. I think one, you have this character who's like the, is it the owl woman? The owl's kiss. Yeah. The Owl's Kiss, right? Who is this, essentially this serial killer woman who walks around homes naked except for an owl mask and then murders people. And then also... She's out of the zine that Patrick Fischler's character writes. Like literally a character out of the graphic novel. That's right. That's right. The the graphic novel Under the Silver Lake, too, to to remind our audience here. And then the second is there's this, uh, in real life, so outside the comic books, there's this real life serial killer slash... I mean, I guess I don't know if it counts, but uh, of dogs, they called the dog killer, 
and that's a recurring uh, character slash theme in the movie as well. So, Scott, let's jump into this, the, the sex and the violence. What do you think about this? Well, yeah, I think there's definitely a connection here between, you know, the objectifying women that we've already talked about and also the the dog killer subplot that you've mentioned. I think that, you know, this is made pretty clear in, in some early scenes where Sam is being accosted by certain women and they're instead of speaking, they just turn into barking dogs like they're what's coming out of their mouth is just like a dog barking. Yeah. Um, and so I think. There are a lot of clues throughout the movie. This is something we talked about after we watched it, Scott. But I think that there's definitely a good case to be made that Sam is actually the dog killer. Um, he has dog biscuits uh, in his pocket, despite not having a dog, despite having a dog who died some time ago. He mm-hmm. experiences. Well, I assume that was made up. I assume that was a lie. Well, yeah. And, I assume that was an allusion to that he kills. I thought that was also part of the illusion that he kills dogs, even though they're not yeah, his. Yeah, that, that may be the case. And also, he mentions like being afraid of dogs at some point when the homeless king is escorting him to like the underground tombs or whatever that he hears a coyote and he thinks it's a dog. He's like, is that a dog? Like he's not going to bite me, is he? Um, which kind of, you know, indicates that he has this sort of aversion to dogs and that maybe he's the dog killer. Also, I think something that we did, we didn't talk about Scott, but is, is very interesting is that at the very beginning of the movie, we see the ver- first shot we see is somebody painting the sign "Beware the Dog Killer" on the window of a coffee shop, and then we get this shot of Andrew Garfield like standing on the other side of the window, and we see the message, and he's standing behind it, almost as if to say, "He's right here, guys! Like this is the dog killer." Um, so I think that's you know an interesting shot when you think about that. But yeah, there's just a lot going on here, and when you throw the owl's kiss into it as well. I'll be honest. That's, like, that's the more confusing one, for yeah, sure. I'll be honest. That's the that's one of the elements of this movie that still stumps me is exactly what the role that this person plays in the movie. But I think one thing that is interesting is that when Andrew Garfield's character does confront the Alice Kiss in his apartment, she runs away in fear, whereas she's killed all of these other people, uh, you know, apparently. Uh, but when she sees Andrew Garfield's character, she runs away in fear. And it just makes me think of a line later in the movie, which I think is one of the most interesting lines in the movie when he's conversing with uh, Millicent Sevens, who is the daughter of Jefferson Sevens, played by Callie Hernandez in the movie. And they're talking about the dog killer. And she says, well, I think anyone who would kill a dog would also kill a human. And he sort of very mm-hmm. evasively is like, I don't know that that's true. Uh, and so, I, you know, I wonder if you can connect all these things like, OK, he's the dog killer. That means, you know, and, and the fact that he, you know, views women as objects, he sees them literally as dogs, as the thing which he hates the most in some scenes. And the fact that the owl's kiss is a scared of him, you know, does that mean that he is also you know, a potential murderer or that he has murdered a, a woman? Who knows? Or or maybe is it just the idea that this sort of you know, objectifying view of women that he has can lead to violence and often does lead to violence. No, I think that's super interesting. And thinking about that, this is very fresh for me thinking about this too, because this is not a path that I've gone to down. But but first touch on the dog killer point. I think that that is right. I'm like pretty convinced after some more reflection. I mean, I was pretty convinced immediately after watching last night, but upon further reflection, even more convinced that he is the dog killer. I think that to your point that you made that I hadn't explicitly thought about, but the fact that the women do, women that he is frustrated by do start barking. Mm-hmm. I think that the the dogs are the element for him to take out his fr- like his sexual frustration with women who like don't sleep with him basically. Right. And 
killing killing the dogs. I think that, that it might have started with you know his ex girlfriend's dog as a as a point of frustration and and taking it out on her, and then escalating further to like him just taking out his anger on dogs in general whenever he's frustrated by women. So that from that perspective, I think I think that that one to me that one's like almost another kind of nailed on conclusion for me. Maybe there are counter arguments that I could go find and read that would maybe poke holes in it. I'm not sure. But for the owl's kiss, I mean, when when I hear you talk about this and, and your point about how violence against dogs can lead to real violence, it, it makes me start to wonder if the owl's kiss is just a another like you know hallucination, or I should say, well, because it is straight out of the zine, right? It is straight mm-hmm. out of the comic books that it's that he's using that from the comic books to. Uh, and then hallucinating that into reality for murders that he himself does. Now, I wonder if he murdered Patrick that's Fischler's character. Yeah. I hadn't even and thought about that, but that's, that's an interpretation for sure. Well, no, I, I like literally, like I said, this is a super fresh take because this is me. I just thought of that just now when you were talking yeah. and that this con- confrontation in his apartment is him essentially confront, like is just a hallucination that he's confronting himself uh, because we do, what we do find is when he does get, when he, when they, that character does crawl out of his cabinets in his apartment, runs into his room and then disappears, right? We don't see it again. And so I wonder if right. that's an element of it because we know that this character must exist at least in the, I mean, this character must exist to the extent that in his mind, he sees the character on the videotape uh, in Fischler's house. But I wonder if he's just hallucinating himself, like hallucinating her in place of himself. Right, yeah. Uh, killing Fischler. I can't think of a reason why he would kill Fischler though, which is the, which is then one of the- I mean- Maybe he wants the clues and stuff, you know, because after he kills him, he goes straight for that bunker and, you know, gets the cereal box. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, maybe speaking to, you know, no one will get in his way of like reaching the like the, the his objectified woman prize or whatever. Sarah, yeah. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I'm not. This is also fresh. I, it's, it's weird that we're recording this live with me thinking mm-hmm. about this. That's a super interesting take. But I think the sex and the violence throughout this movie uh, I think they're interconnected, right? Like, I think that it's definitely a critique of, of men, like toxic, toxic masculinity and, and and the different ways that that can not only just manifest, but what it can lead to. And those are really negative things, which again, I think makes this movie inherently not misogynist because I think that it, again, because this character is, this character, Sam is not being glorified whatsoever in this movie to me. The fact that you then have all these other elements. It's even more of a critique of masculinity. And then of course, not, not in any way promoting misogyny again, that that's just me. And then uh, the one element that we haven't talked about, cause we talked about the violence, but the sex as well, the other sexualized nature of this movie, you have the playboy magazine, you have the murder of Millicent mm-hmm. Simmons, but I mean, that's such a strange scene. I don't know. Millicent Simmons. Se- I, did I say Simmons? Yes. Not Mil- the actress from a quiet place. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yes. Millicent <laughs> Severance, yes. Uh, she's alive and well to my, the best of my knowledge. Millicent, Millicent Severance is killed while they're at Silver Lake. And then of course the pose of her in the playboy from the, the pose out of the playboy magazine that he has. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Cause again, I think this is another one of those that's a little, still a little obtuse for me. I haven't quite figured it out who murders her. And then also what that, how that pose and what, and what that pose means for the larger plot as well. I think this might be the last one we touch on before we do wrap things up. Cause there are so many other things we could, we could sit here and talk about this for literally, literally hours, but I think we'll, we'll wrap it up with this one. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Um, I have a good grip on that either. I think it, I mean, obviously this is one of those things where, you know, I say that, yeah, okay, maybe it's a flaw, maybe it's confusing and we don't really understand what the significance of it is. But, you know, the fact that we see this character in the same pose as the Playboy, you know, magazine, it means something, right? And I, so I think this is where, you know, 
Mitchell deserves credit, right? Because I don't think he I don't think he would do that just, you know, like I think that it's meant to mean something. We need to watch it on repeat viewings. And maybe, you know, maybe he should make it a little bit clearer on the first watch, but I don't know that I necessarily hold that against him. It, you know, when it when it comes to this, you know, briefly, one other thing which we didn't touch on was I think there is a definitely a critique of pop culture here. One of the scenes that I think is probably a little bit more muddled and more sort of on the nose to your you know earlier point is the scene with the songwriter. There's this old man who lives in like a mansion who basically ha- is responsible for like every single hip pop song. Um writing all of them and then, you know, just sort of licensing them out to different artists. Andrew Garfield's character confronts him at the mansion and the old man sort of goes on this long rambling speech about how, you know, there's, you know, nothing in Hollywood is original. Like, you're, you know, nothing that you're hearing on the radio is original. It's all, you know, at the expense of someone's labor from many years ago or something. You know, in this case, it's all this guy's labor and other people, you know, crediting off of it. Um, I think there's a definite, you know, critique of Hollywood and pop culture there. You know, another moment is you mentioned the Hitchcock grave part. You know, there's this scene in the Hollywood cemetery where these uh, girls are just sort of literally standing on Hitchcock's grave. It's almost sort of a meta critique of the movie himself that he's aping Hitchcock, uh, you know, in, in a way that a lot of filmmakers and artists ape other, you know, artists who have come before them and, you know, maybe in an unsatisfying way. Uh, because ultimately Andrew Garfield does end up beating the songwriter to death with Kurt Cobain's Stratocaster guitar. Yeah, that's what probably the most violent scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Pretty safe to say. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think that one's one of the more on the nose ones. Like, I mean, they just, he just literally yells it at you, basically that nothing, like nothing's, nothing's original. Everything's done. I keep, go- I keep going back to this, but even though I think that this scene is flawed and it's heavy-handed it's still an incredibly engaging scene, right? You have this wild character who's banging out all of these famous pop songs on his piano, you know, everything from the Backstreet Boys to, you know, Turning Teeth, the song that Jesus and the Brides of Dracula seen in this movie. And then, you know, you have the whole, he's hitting, he's killing him with the Stratocaster guitar. Like it's a very, you know, stylized, engaging, entertaining scene to watch, even if, you know, maybe, from a storytelling perspective, it's not quite as successful. And so I think, again, he deserves some credit because the flaws are at least interesting. Yeah, no, that's true. And to go quickly back on the Millicent Severance death point, I wonder if it's, again, if it's him killing her in the pose is supposed to represent like he is like, you know, killed her. I mean, maybe you could go even further and say that, you know, he's tried to, I mean, he's tried to sexualize her, failed and killed her. I don't know. Again, it's so messy because it's his perspective and it's his, he's the unreliable narrator. Yeah. You don't know what actually has, has happened. The pose might be a hint of uh, towards what actually happened, right? That it's his final, like he is the serial yeah. killer. It's his, it's, you know, he, he lets her drift to the bottom of, of the lake in this pose because that's what gets him off. Essentially. We never know who's shooting at her. We never know why they're shooting at her. We never hear anything about this shooting again for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he never so maybe that. that's because, He's, you know, the killer. I think that's a good point. Actually, The unreliable narrative portion makes it so difficult to know, right? Like you're just, eventually, yeah. you're never really going to know. And you can only make, you can only craft some guesswork, some educated guesses. And then, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the songwriter scene. I forgot about that one. That one's, pro- it's definitely worth mentioning, worth talking about, because it is one of the critical themes of the movie. Of the movie. And yeah, the I think that it, that entire theme is the, is the one that's very heavy handed. I mentioned the Hitchcock one earlier. You know, you re-referenced it. You mentioned this scene. There are a couple others as well. 
But also, I mean, you think about the opening scene when he's watching these people through binoculars, obvious ode to rear window. He even has the rear window pose and er, uh, poster in his apartment. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on. That's spot on. So, yeah, Scott, I think there's so many other things that we haven't touched on that we could touch on. But I think that's probably a, a good place to start our wrap up unless there is anything else you want to mention. Yeah, again, we could probably go on all day talking about this movie, but I think for me, that's some of the joy of of this movie is that, you know, we've had a really good discussion here debating the themes and we've come up with new ideas and new interpretations that we hadn't thought about until we were having this discussion. So I think it's a credit to him that we care enough about this movie, that we're interested enough by what went on on screen, that we want to debate it, that it's not just, we're not just indifferent, like, oh, you know, who really cares what he meant? And I think, again, Going back to this once more, I think David Robert Mitchell's artistry here is why we're so engaged in debating these topics, because he, he's made such a mesmerizing film to watch that I think we want there to be these meanings to it. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, this might be a meta criticism of people who want to extract meaning out of things that don't have meaning to, which I think I'm not saying that that's exactly the point. That I making, think, but I think yeah. that there, there probably is some meta critique about that, though, because I think I think he's he's doing soft you know, critiques and references to so many different things that it wouldn't surprise me if this film has a deeper meaning while also being a meta critique of people who are trying to find the deeper meaning. Yeah. Well, I don't think that every single thing means everything in this movie. And if you go on Reddit, you can find yeah, I mean, people there's like some really like overanalyzing everything. Totally, totally. I think that these large ideas, you know, that we're talking about, like the owl's kiss and, you know, Millicent Seventh's dying in the pose of, on the Playboy magazine. There's something going on here. I think it, it would be, uh, it wouldn't be fair to Mitchell to say that these larger things just mean nothing. And the fact that, oh, maybe we have to do a little bit more mental labor to figure out what they mean, means that he's not done a good job as a filmmaker. Yeah, I don't think he's just screwing with people, but I think at some at some point he probably is screwing with people a little bit. You know, the whole again, going back to the whole point of the ending in the movie is that this guy has thrown himself into this to distract himself from daily life. So I think, you know, it would be foolish to think that Mitchell wants us to throw ourselves fully into the mystery that is going on in within his movie. I think that, uh, you know, it's unsatisfying for a reason, because throwing yourself into this mystery, trying to overinterpret, overanalyze every single thing in this movie is going to be unsatisfactory. And let it be so, Scott, and let it be so. All right, Scott, what's your favorite scene from Under the Silver Lake? Man, there's so many, you know, this movie feels like a fever dream. Uh, I think that there's so many really cool, like, set pieces. Some of the parties that he go to are are really well shot. Um, I love, you know, the... Again, there again, there's so many striking shots of like classic LA locations. When he goes up to the songwriter's mansion, there's this really amazing shot of him like at the very bottom of the mountain, about to, you know, climb up to where the mansion is, which I think is awesome. One small moment which I personally just love in the movie, which I'll I'll use as my answer for this question, is that when he finally, you know, deciphers the final clue, he uses the map from like this Nintendo Power magazine. Uh, combined with the map from the cereal box that he takes from Patrick Fischler's house. And like he puts the cereal box map over the Nintendo Power magazine and like that reveals the location. But as he does it, there's this moment in the score where it's the first time we really heard the sound in the whole movie. But it's like this almost like Nintendo, like Super Mario Brothers style music sound as he puts the map and like as the clue is revealed. And it's just such a perfect moment, like, uh, you know, 
when when you take into account that he's he's looking at the Nintendo Power magazine, it's such a like cheeky moment from disaster piece in the score that I just really appreciate it. I love the way that, you know, again, that the the score complements the movie here. Yeah, definitely. I think I think there are a lot of elements of this movie that are um well, I guess to, to back up, I think that you know one of my favorite shots in the film is actually not the opening shot, but the shot right after. And that is, you know, he's he's left the coffee shop now. He's walking back to his apartment and a squirrel just falls out of a tree and like yeah. just totally, you know, gets gets his like brain splattered across the concrete, basically. And the the cinematography of that moment where it's it, the, the camera's in front of him, it's tracking back with him towards the apartment and then it just like pans up and you see the squirrel fall out of the sky and fall right in front of him. And I think that that single piece of cinematography there is emblematic of the cinematography in the entire movie. And I, and that's definitely my favorite part of the film. So I think that's a, a good, it's a good shot cinematography of that particular moment or set to the tone for what the cinematography is going to be for the entire movie. Kind of similar to what you're talking about with the score. I just think it's really great. Yeah. And you know, third movie this year, which Mike Jalakis has done, but great work in. We also saw his his photography in Us and Glass. So he's one to watch for sure. Let's put a score on this so-called fever dream. What are you giving under the Silver Lake? Yeah, Scott, I think it's early in the year to make bold predictions, but I'm going to make one, and I'm going to say that at the end of the year when we do our countdown, Under the Silver Lake will be in my top 10 without a doubt, uh, and I give it a 9.5. If the quality of movies continues for what we've had so far this year, it wouldn't blow my mind if Under the Silver Lake in your top ten because I was looking at the movies oh, that I've wow. seen this year. I was looking at the movies that I've seen this year, Scott, and not a single one I have has been a movie where I'm like, that was a really good movie yet this year. Well, it's still April. And it is still April, but last year, Scott, we'd already seen Black Panther, we, which I know you, I liked more than you, but we'd already seen that movie. We'd already seen Tully. We'd already seen so, like several movies where I'm like, that was a really good movie. Uh, and I don't know if I've, I've, I've had that yet, but we'll see. We have, we have Endgame coming up next week. We have Detective Pikachu <laughs> coming up two weeks after that. Yeah. Uh, so there's, I'm, I'm optimistic. There are still so many great movies left on the calendar for this year, but just something that I was noticing the other day as I was going through the 20 or so movies that I've already seen, the, the new movies I've already seen this year. But for yeah. me, this movie, it won't surprise our listeners that I'm coming out a little bit more negatively than, than you on this movie because you know one of the things that I think back and even though I'm I've, I I feel like I've been pretty engaged and pretty positive about this discussion which is true I am positive about this movie I think everyone should go see it but for me the, the I mean the center the central plot of this movie is the mystery of what happened to to Sarah and and Sam's obsession to me the themes are far more interesting than the plot if that makes sense I'm just not I I wasn't that engaged the truth is that I just wasn't that engaged with the central mystery of the movie. I thought some of the questions and some of the convoluted themes, that was the stuff that I was most engaged in and most interested in wrestling with. And yes, some of that is tied into the central plot of the movie, but I just ultimately didn't care that much about whether or not he found Sarah because I mean, and largely because I didn't really like this character. I didn't like his character. I didn't want him to find her. And in that sense, the ending was satisfying that he didn't really find her, Mm -hmm. but uh, it didn't leave me engaged, which is, which is why and because it's such a core part of it, it's why I'm coming out so I think so much more negative than you on this film, and I'm coming out at a seven point five. Uh, well, I'm a shill, but it's still a great movie. No, look, like I had a like like I said, I had a super engaging conversation with you about what all these different themes and motifs mean, and that like that was still good enough for me to recommend this to to everyone. There are yeah. going to be parts that that really resonate with people. There are going to be parts, maybe even sometimes all this movie that doesn't resonate with other people, and that's totally fine. But I think that you should experience this for yourself. Uh, j- just to see what does work and what doesn't. And I think this is a very off-putting movie 
in a, but like in a way that's, that is to your point, engaging and, and for, for most of it. Yeah. Least. And people, please go see it. If you haven't seen it, please support like original filmmaking like this so that every movie we get is not a remake or a sequel, you know, because whether you end up liking it or not on a macro level, we need more original films like this. So I hope that you will support it on VOD. Yep. And it's on VOD today, actually, when this releases. All right, Scott, that will do it for our quite lengthy discussion, but really enjoyable one for me uh, of Under the Silver Lake. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing some big recent news and trailers, including that trailer coming out of Star Wars Celebration and also some big Disney Plus news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we've had a bunch of news come in since the last time we recorded an episode because, as some listeners might have picked up on, we recorded that Pet Cemetery episode the same weekend as the Shazam episode, and we missed a lot of news from Star Wars Celebration and Disney+. Plus. <laughs> but we're going to cover it all now, and we'll start with Disney+. Plus. So we had that massive Disney Plus news drop about you know two Thursdays ago now, and we learned a lot of information confirming a lot of stuff that we already kind of knew but then also got a bunch of new information as well. So just to run through some of the the new stuff, I uh, we have a Hawkeye series in development, and, and that's sort of the fourth MCU TV series alongside the Loki show that we've already that has already been rumored and was confirmed. The Vision Scarlet Witch show called WandaVision that was already uh, that was that one was already confirmed, and then the Winter Soldier and Falcon TV show. That's also going to be happening, which was confirmed. So that's four MCU TV series. Scott, we already had known about the other three. What did you think of this fourth Hawkeye series? Yeah, I mean, it. you know, for, for me, because I just don't watch as much TV, you know, I think that it's going to be kind of picking and choosing from these MCU shows, which one that I actually am going to, you know, invest my time into. So maybe it's a, a matter of like sort of waiting for reviews or something. But right now, I have mm-hmm. to be honest, the one that intrigues me the most is uh, the Wanda vision one. Cause I, I really do like, it's literally called Wanda vision. Yeah, That's the actual name of the yeah, show. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I really do like Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. And I think that their relationship and really just them as heroes, you know, obviously doesn't, didn't play it while it played a huge role in the plot of Avengers infinity war. Like they didn't spend a lot of time on the characters themselves. And so I'd be interested to see that played out more in a television series but you know, I'm not surprised to see Hawkeye going to Disney Plus. I think that um, you know he's kind of been on the fringes. Obviously, he didn't even show up in Infinity War, um, and never got a for a reason though. Yeah, Le- it's right. leading into something. But he never got a standalone movie either. So I think that you know it, it's not surprising to see that this is going to be one of the series. Yeah, I wa- I wasn't surprised. It's really interesting because I think they're really trying to do something different with these shows, right? They're really going to, to, I think they're really going to lean on Disney plus as a service to expand the MCU. Unlike, and I think this is very different. And I know we've talked about this before, but very different from what they've done with their TV shows before. Now there was never an attempt to connect anything from these TV shows. Whereas my understanding is that these shows, I mean, you can look at the surface, right? Like you're getting characters from the MCU on these shows, which hasn't happened yet. And that's a big, but also 
I think using Disney Plus and using these, you know, whether the, I, I imagine there'll be mini series, right? They won't be like 24 episode run shows. There'll be something like probably the Marvel shows on Netflix, if not even shorter. But using that as a way to continue telling stories from the MCU in a, in, in a way that's very meaningful to the MCU. You know, you could say even that, or I mean, we'll know more next week once we've seen Endgame. But this might be the medium to continue with, you know, sort of that, you know, Arrow 1 Avengers this might be the medium which we see to continue to see those as the MCU evolves in the, you know, whatever the second era is going to be after the infinity stone saga ends. But this could be a way to continue to stay up to date or visit other stories in the MCU that haven't been told in the movies and that can't be told uh, on the big screen, right? They just can't be. So using Disney plus in a way that's super interesting. I'm excited about these. You're right. It's a lot of TV shows. They're not all going to be dropping at once. I mean, I don't, in fact, I don't think any of these shows are going to be coming out at launch for, I could be wrong, but I don't think any of these shows with the exception of maybe WandaVision, I need, I need to go double check, but I think that most of these shows are not going to be dropping at launch, but they will be out in the first year and they're going to be casual drops over the course of that year. So if it's spread out in the right interval, j- just like with any you know movie series, right, with that with this movie universe, if they're spread out over the right interval, it's going to be a lot more digestible. And I'm looking forward to this. You know, honestly, the, the hook of you know having known characters and telling me that they're going to be more connected to the actual MCU movies is going to ultimately get me to watch these shows. Like, the fact that we're getting them in this format and I'm told that it's going to be relevant to the MCU, I'm totally going to watch these, especially if they're not super long series as well yeah and you know maybe maybe again to my point i'll give them all a shot and just mm-hmm. kind of decide based on what i like the most from the initial episode or so i think that's a great approach and i think that you know if done the right way and if you know if connected enough to the movies hopefully you will be hooked by them and you'll and you'll watch that full run so we'll see yeah yeah so some other tv shows in, in development of course we already know about the mandalorian and, and everything that's going on over there with the jean favreau created show and produced show uh, starring Pedro Pascal in the title role. But that's going to be available day one at launch. That's going to be live on November 12th when this service launches. Scott, that got me excited because when anytime any service launches, whether it's, you know, whether it's a streaming service or whether it's like a new, you know, game console, for example, you're always wondering, okay, what's going to be there at launch and having the Mandalorian available in its full first season at launch. That's big. And so that, that got me excited. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely my number one thing that I'm looking forward to the most on Disney+. And so, yeah, you're right. Hearing it, it's going to be there from day one is exciting to me. And also, I don't know if you've seen the footage, but there's a, some fan shot videos from Star Wars Celebration of the like three minutes of footage that they showed from The Mandalorian. And it looks really cool. Well, that's exciting, Scott. I can't wait. Again, yeah. uh, you know, I'm I don't know if it's the thing I'm most excited about Disney Plus, but it's definitely that thing that originally caught my attention when Disney Plus was you know first uh, teased and, and rumored and announced, and this show was announced. That true, and, and you know, there's another Star Wars series in development as well that will be out within the first year, and that's a Diego Diego Luna focused Cassian Andor TV series. So the character from Rogue One, Scott, I, mm. you know that I love Diego Luna, so I'm very excited about this show. Especially since, you know, there's talk that Star Wars is going to be going on a hiatus after this movie. Any sort of Star Wars fix I can get in the interim, I'm here for. And yeah, I've only seen Rogue One like a couple times, but I also do enjoy the movie and I'm open to learning more about this character. There's a few other things also in development over on Disney Plus that are not related to comic books or Star Wars. We know that there's a Sandlot TV series in development, Scott. And then one that's a little bit more interesting for me personally, there's a Love, Simon TV series in development. Again, raise my hand. I still haven't seen Love, Simon. I can't. Uh, Honestly, Scott, this is one of those movies where I think that you would like it so much you need to see it. I know. 
it's yeah, it, but it, you know, it's become a bit now. So it's it's like how Christian Harloff hasn't watched the thing, and so it's become a bit now. So I have to just keep not watching it for the bit. But no, <laughs> uh, that uh, you know, I'm if I like the movie as much as you you think I will, then yeah, obviously I'd be excited about a TV series, the Sandlot series. I'm with you. Doesn't excite me as much. I think this is one of those like cult classic kids movies that never really caught on with me. Um, mm. It's it's definitely for it's 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 to attract a certain type of people yeah. to the platform, and I think it's it's good it's good content. It's just not content that I probably will check out. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. All right, Scott. So to just wrap up our Disney Plus, that's all the that's all the relevant news that I thought worth talking about. But just to close things out, Scott, it's it's launching November twelfth, like I already mentioned, at six ninety nine a month. Very aggressive pricing. Uh, good to see. Obviously, we know that it's not going to have the library of something like Netflix. So this price point makes sense. And it's competitive, right? You're you're going to get people to adopt this. Yeah, I mean, I love seeing this price point. And I think it's going to cause a lot of people who maybe were on the fence to say, hey, I'll give this a try. And, you know, if the original content and stuff that they have on there from day one, like The Mandalorian, is good, then they're not going to mind going up when the price does inevitably go up. Yep, spot on. Totally agree. All right. In other TV streaming service news, Apple TV Plus, which was announced, a few, or I should say officially unveiled a few weeks ago, uh, we had a little more uh, content announcement. They do have some more original content coming to their service, and that is an eight-episode miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's Lizzie's story starring Julianne Moore with Stephen King in an unusual uh, th- this was, I think, this is the big hook of this. Is it Stephen King actually writing the full screenplay for all eight episodes? Scott, do, what is, does this do anything for you? Does this make you more interested in Apple TV Plus? We, you know, we mentioned that this doesn't look super appealing to us, although we do like the idea of Brie Larson's uh, CIA series on on this. But does this make you consider more getting Apple TV Plus? Combined with the Brie Larson stuff, I think that they're starting to build a library that is at least getting me building my interest a little bit. You know, again, when in, you put it up against Disney Plus or something like that, I, I'm probably going to, you know, tend to side with Disney Plus at this point in time. But if they continue to have projects like this on the horizon, then I can absolutely see myself going in for both of them because, yeah, I mean, it's having Stephen King write a show is something you're right. It's it's a big hook. He doesn't usually get that involved uh, with the projects that are based off of his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's exciting. So, all right, moving away from streaming services for a, a few pieces of news here, we have some casting news and also some movie announcements. And why don't we start with that? We've recently learned about this movie called The Hunt, which is in production at Blumhouse, about rednecks being captured and hunted by rich elites. Scott, I said this sounded like weird redneck adaptation of the most dangerous game. Scott, what are you thinking of this? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like. And I think that the most interesting thing about this to me is that Damon Lindelof is one of the writers uh, because, of course, you know, he, he's most known for Lost, which is not a show that I ever got into. But he did The Leftovers, which is a show that I love. And, you know, his other stuff with the Star Trek movies and stuff like that. He's a huge name in terms of writing and screenwriting. And so I think it's interesting to see him pairing with Blumhouse, which, you know, is typically known for being on the lower budget end. That's really sort of their MO. And that makes me think that this could be something really intriguing to watch. It'll be really interesting to see if, you know, how this plays out, because if it follows the most dangerous game format, you know, eventually these rednecks are going to end up killing these rich elite. So it'll be interesting what like narrative story it ultimately tells and and what the you know overarching takeaway message is from this movie, because I can already see the political undertones of, of this movie coming out and and 
you know, what audience this will appeal to and maybe what audience this will outrage. It'll be, I think this could be a really interesting movie to talk about when, it, when this does come out. I don't know whether we'll end up covering it on the podcast, but it'll be interesting to talk about nevertheless. Yeah. I'd hope it doesn't disparage Southerners. We would not take well to that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, you know, no one, no one likes being hunted down and killed probably. I don't think that's just Southerners. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> All right, Scott, this isn't casting news, but some directorial news. John Watts is in talks to direct Methuselah, which, of course, we found out most recently will be starring Michael B. Jordan in that titular role. Scott, John Watts is a director. If I'm not mistaken, you reacted pretty positively to this announcement. Yeah, I mean, obviously, his last uh, project was something that I loved and that a lot of people loved, and that's Spider-Man Homecoming. And I think that, you know, I've been intrigued from this uh, with this project from the beginning just because of the subject matter. But obviously getting Michael B. Jordan on on board is exciting. And yeah, this is just more news in the positive direction. Although I am still a little bit puzzled about what exactly sort of genre this movie is going to fall into. Yeah, I mean, he's doing Far From Home, too. I, I, you mentioned that his most recent project was Homecoming, but he's also directing the sequel. So this just tells me that this movie is going is probably just going to end up being a superhero movie. I mean, you got Michael B. Jordan, who's already been a superhero. Well, I should say he's a villain, but a supervillain. But, you know, he's already played a hero role. John Watts directs superhero movies. It's just going to be Methuselah kicking ass in you know, pre-biblical days. It does kind of seem like that, which is why I, I'm a little puzzled, because... I'm not sure we've ever seen something like that before, but yeah, hey, more power to him. I mean, I, I'm joking, but it would be, I mean, it's not the most outlandish well, you, take. You are, but I don't think that that's far off, honestly. Yeah, no, I was going to say, it's, it's not outlandish, given the, I mean, it is yeah. outlandish for Michael B. Jordan, because he's done so many, I mean, I guess not, I mean, all most of his most recent roles have been Black Panther and the Creed, and the Creed movies, so maybe not, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it ends up being, but again, we're probably a couple years out before we see this movie in theaters. Yeah. All right. Uh, similar movies that are many years out before we see them in theaters. The Avatar sequels add another member to the cast. You know, we've already got the announcement that Vin Diesel will be joining the cast of the sequels. But we also now know that Michelle Yeoh added has been added to the cast. Scott, does this do anything more for you? The Avatar sequels, we liked her last year in Crazy Rich Asians, although traditionally known for more action-oriented movies. I mean, you know, you're right. She was good in Crazy Rich Asians. But no, to answer your question, this does not add to my hype. At this point, unless they're pulling in like Jake Gyllenhaal or Haley Lou Richardson or something like I'm pretty much, uh, you know, going to stand firm on what I think about these Avatar sequels. Uh, And, you know, the longer the wait, the better. I I could not imagine if they ended up pulling Jake Gyllenhaal and Haley Richardson you just have your foot so far into your mouth at that point I know (laughs) I would be so conflicted (laughs) incredible all right Scott uh Son of the South which is Spike Lee's next movie has a little bit of casting news and that we know that Lucy Hale and Lucas Till will be joining the cast of the of that movie yeah no I'm definitely excited for this it's an interesting sounding movie sort of a like coming of age slash civil rights movie um which is kind of a you know a genre crossover that you don't see a lot of you know at least that's my understanding of it at this point lucas till lucy hale not people that i've seen in a whole host of projects i guess uh i guess lucas till is in the x-men movies but lucy hale she had some good songs on her country album that she put out a few years ago but it's you know it's interesting that uh these are not the sort of a-list talent that we are used to seeing Spike Lee attract so you know, it, I, it's interesting in that regard, I guess. Yeah, it's probably a little bit lower budget relative to Black Klansman. We'll see. But it's, it is based on the autobiography by Bob Zellner, which is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, which, to your point, it's about the grandson of a Klansman coming of age in the Deep South. 
and eventually who eventually joins the civil rights movement. I imagine Lucas Till probably plays one of the older, you know, maybe one of the older versions of that character. Yeah. And Lucy Hale, probably, I don't know, girlfriend. Love interest. Maybe she's a racist. Could be. Could be. Maybe a sister or something. I don't know. I do want to clarify, this movie's not being directed by Spike Lee. It's just a, it's his production company and he's producing it. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, the director is Barry Alexander Brown. If you say so. <laughs> yeah, never heard of him. All right. So that's that. I think a couple more pieces of news before we move on to the trailers. John Cena looks like he will be joining the Suicide Squad reboot slash sequel. <laughs> exactly instead of instead of so in the place of dave bautista who we talked about would would be joining which is something that made a lot of sense to us given james gunn's uh now directing the movie but it seems like his scheduling just doesn't permit him to join and so instead it looks like we'll be having john cena scott do you uh i mean first off are you disappointed that dave bautista is not going to be in and john cena is taking the place and does john Cena, you know irrespective of him replacing bautista are you excited about john cena being in the movie i mean eh like I was, ex- I was somewhat excited for Dave Bautista just because I do enjoy Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, but I, he's a good actor. Yeah, yeah, he's fine. But John Cena is not someone who I've seen in a whole host of projects. With that being said, people do like him. He was in two very well reviewed movies last year, and Bumblebee and Blockers. Uh, neither one which I've seen, but again, people like him. So, you know, this is something I I will be seeing, uh, and so I, I hope I have some positive reaction. Yeah, I didn't realize Blockers was a well-reviewed movie last year. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's. I mean, I'm sure it's in the 70s, 80s on Rotten Tomatoes, I would say. Yeah, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Look at me. Should have seen it. Oh, well. All right, Scott. Moose that we're very excited about, talking about the return of an actress who took a brief hiatus from acting after her recent movie, or I should say her movie about this time last year, uh, in Red Sparrow, and that's Jennifer Lawrence. She announced that she was going on a hiatus after that movie, and she's set to return from that hiatus by going back to her indie roots, so thinking things like win- something like Winter's Bone uh, in an upcoming A24 drama, Scott. But, you know, she's just now, you know, rejoining a project. It could be a year or two before this movie comes out, so that'll end up ultimately meaning we'll have a two- to three-year absence from movies. I know that we're both excited about her coming back and, you know, doing a new acting a new role. I mean, I say, okay, I'm also stupid here. She's in the X-Men movie that Dark Phoenix is coming out this year. So it's not like yeah. she'll be in that film. Although, you know, all the, all the gossip is that, you know, she begged, basically was begging them just to kill her off in this movie, which looks like the trailer from the trailer. That's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, so she, she stopped acting this around this time last year, taking a hiatus. And it looks like a year was enough for her. She's rejoining this A24 project. I'd love for her to kind of reconjure that magic that she had in her run of movies back in the earlier uh, 2010s with Silver Linings Playbook, with Winter's Bone, with uh, American Hustle, with movies, you know, a little a little bit more recently, Joy, when you, you know, aired this, this news to me, uh, I was talking about how, you know, yeah, she's been in movies recently that and she's had good performances in those movies, but I haven't enjoyed watching her in a movie in a while. Like even Red Sparrow was just a depressing movie. Didn't really enjoy it that much. She was good in it, but I didn't enjoy it. And so I'm hoping that she does something that I enjoy watching her. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this seems interesting. You know, I think that obviously having A24 on board is something that gets me intrigued. Uh, It is going to be from a first time director and a first time writer. And also this is like it's going to be my understanding is that it's kind of a war movie, uh, maybe about someone sort of suffering from PTSD, which I'll be honest, like that sort of plot doesn't grab me right off the page. But I'll tell you what does grab me, in addition to Jennifer Lawrence, who I agree I'm a fan of, 
is that Brian Tyree Henry is in talks to play the male lead in this movie. So kind of a mixed bag in terms of how I feel about this going forward. But I agree. I think Jennifer Lawrence is making a smart step for her career to do something like this next. All right, Scott, you know, you mentioned a movie or that John Cena was in that you hadn't watched yet. And that was Bumblebee from earlier, directed by Travis Knight. And he is now set to direct a new movie also from the con- like, I guess Transformers isn't technically a comic book movie, but of that of that ilk. And that is the six billion dollar man, which has been in kind of development hell for a long period of time, I understand. But starring Mark Wahlberg in the titular role, Scott, you probably I- I'm going to go on a limb and say you probably don't know anything about this, about what the six billion dollar man is. But Scott, does this pique your interest? I don't know if you're a Travis Knight fan, of course, of, you know, coming to coming to fame with his late his roles at uh, Lake Animation Studios. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that I don't like you said, I don't really know much about the source material, so I don't know whether to get excited about it. Also, I mean, I haven't seen Bumblebee. I haven't seen Kubo, which I believe was Travis Knight. This is kind of a big unknown for me at this point. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a huge Mark Wahlberg fan, so that is kind of a let. I'm not super interested yeah. in that aspect of it, but I liked what Travis Knight did with Bumblebee. I liked what he did at Leica with Kubo. Um, so I'm on board because of that. I just hope that we're, he's able to conjure something up from Mark Wahlberg that's more interesting than you know anything he's done in the last five years. Uh, I'm with you on that. Yeah. All right, Scott. Time to shift over to the things that we care most about, and that's the trailers. Why don't we go ahead and get the other stuff out of the way first before we end with Star Wars Episode Nine? How about the Lion King trailer? Scott, what did this do for you? Or does this get you more excited about this remake, or is it just kind of confirming what you already thought? Yeah, it's pretty much confirming that I'm not really that excited at all about this and that it's kind of just a cash grab for Disney to the point where we even see like a shot from the new movie identical to a shot from the old movie and they like overlay the footage from the old from the animated movie into the trailer like they're not even trying to hide the fact that this is going to be just a freaking shot by shot remake of the original and it just seems kind of cynical by disney and yeah it's going to make a lot of money but they have a lot of money already surely (laughs) (laughs) no i think that that the shot for shot remake is something that they're trying that is definitely on what they're trying to do with it at least in some parts of it because it's you know so beloved and it's probably a cynical take to say that they're being lazy, but I think that there actually is some element that they're trying to craft. But if it's so beloved, then why remake it? (laughs) Well, then, yeah, I mean, there you get the answer is that it's live action and they can, and it's cool that it's live action would be like the optimist take. And the the cynical take is that again, they can make money off of it. And it's probably somewhere in the middle, a little bit of both, but I can understand the frustration because I'm, I, you know, one of the reasons that I, one of the things that I like about, you know, as much as I criticize Dumbo and, the problems I had with it, it wasn't a remake of the original Dumbo. Yeah. Because that would just would have been boring if it had been a remake of the original And Dumbo. racist. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know if, if racism is, uh, is a critique that has ever been leveled at the Lion King movie, which is maybe why they can remake it shot for shot. But that being said, you know, I hope that they do something different with this movie and do something interesting and add maybe, you know, l- you know, lay over a, a theme that's that maybe was more subtle or, or not touched on in the movie and, and make it more interesting. But I'm, that's maybe more I'm probably more hopeful than realistic about that. I will say, you know, at the very end of the trailer, in the last moments when it when it cuts over to uh, Timon and Pumbaa, you know, singing Akuna Matata, I'm just like, all right, I'm in. This is it. I'll, I'll go for this. Yeah. Billy Eichner's doing the voice of Timon, too, which is kind of funny. And isn't it Seth Rogen is doing Pumbaa? Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm probably wrong on that. We'll see. Uh, yeah. No, so I'm in for, for that much. But I I'll overall agree with your take. 
Okay, Scott. So one that's not a shot for shot remake for sure. That's Child's Play, the the kind of reboot. I think it's a reboot, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Child's Play being rebooted is definitely on our podcast schedule for later uh, this year at the at the end of June. It releases side by side with Toy Story, which is probably some like meta critique of, to- of toys at some level that weekend. It'll be a fun time. But Scott, the first trailer was released for this movie last year. We got a brief glimpse of Mark Hamill as. Uh, the voice of Chucky. What did you think of this trailer? Yeah, this looks good. I think that, um, you know, this was already something I was excited for. I think it definitely has a real sort of it, Stranger Things feel to it, which it's from the producers of it, so it makes sense. Uh, and I think, you know, that could go one of two ways. You know, obviously, they could it could be really successful and good like it, or it could kind of be sort of a failed attempt to sort of cash on on that, cash in on that type of, uh, you know, sci-fi horror, which is obviously really popular right now. We'll see. But yeah, I think Mark Hamill I, will do a good job as Chucky from the the brief, uh, you know, glimpse we got in the trailer, as you said. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm on board. Yeah, I'm on board as well. I think the feel of the movie is, is spot on. It's they're definitely trying to, if if not recreate the the tone of something like Stranger Things or it, then definitely riff on it. And, and, and kind of lean into that element because it's, it's been successful. It's been popular. And honestly, Scott, I'd be lying if I said I'm not into this movie for that element of it. This is not like the original Child's Play, not a movie that I ever like feel like I need to watch. It's not up my alley. It's not a movie. But when you add in this element uh, that worked for me in, in, in a movie like It Chapter One, and you know, I actually haven't seen Stranger Things, but it's on my, wa- it's on my watch list. I think that that's, that's something that really could work. So if they do it well, I'm here for it. And this trailer definitely got me more interested in this movie than I otherwise would. All right, Scott, going on now into the absurd, we have uh, the first, I guess actually the second trailer for the fast and furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Scott, uh, I, when I watched this trailer and I, you know, met and like texted you about it, I was like, this movie is just going to be absolutely ridiculous. I'm not up to date on the fast and furious franchise past too fast, too furious. So I just never watched anything Tokyo drift and beyond. I have no idea where the Fast and Furious franchise is in terms of absurdity at this point. But this movie like looks like it's dialing up absurdity to 11, not not coming down at all. I mean, in one of them, I think it was Furious 7, like Vin Diesel and The Rock literally drive cars from like 100 feet away straight into each other. And then they just like immediately hop out of the car and start fighting each other. So it's been pretty absurd for a while. Uh, I think that's kind of the hallmark, which which uh, it has hung its hat on. But yeah, this you're right. This trailer is crazy. It it looks like a really fun movie. I won't lie. The trailer was like four minutes long, though. Uh, and I love this thing of like just introducing new characters into uh, into the Shaw family every time they need like a new character. Because originally there was like Owen Shaw, who I can't remember who played him, but he was part of like the the crew. Then they brought in Jason Statham as like, oh, it's his brother. And now they're bringing in Vanessa Kirby as his sister, um, as sort of the third member of the crew alongside The Rock and uh, Jason Statham. And of course, we also have Idris Elba, who the one thing which gives me pause about this movie is that he is like this genetically engineered super soldier. And I really kind of don't want this to be a superhero franchise. I want it to stay more in the Mission Impossible realm. But yeah, this is just going to be a big, dumb movie that is probably going to have some really insane set pieces and really the kind of thing you want to see on a hot summer afternoon. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm here for it. This will, you know, because we will almost certainly watch this movie for the podcast, this will probably get me back into the Fast and Furious franchise because the first trailer really just showed off just Idris Elba, Jason Statham and and 
uh, The Rock. And so I'm yeah. glad this this trailer expanded out. And and, sh- and even though it only introduced a couple of new characters and, and really only gave any significant time to Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby is someone who I'm really here for. I love her in The Crown. I liked her last year in Mission Impossible Fallout. And she's just an actress that's kind of, you know, I'm always get excited when I see her in a movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I thought she was good in Mission Impossible. And uh, I'm interested to see what she can do here in more of a leading role. What we've all been waiting for, it's been a week and a half, or I guess a little bit less than a week and a half, a week and a couple days since we were first saw this trailer, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Oh man, so much to talk about. Where do you want to start? I don't even know. This trailer was so awesome and really just uh, got me even more hyped, if that was possible, for what J.J. Abrams is going to do, how he's going to conclude this trilogy. Um, you know, this opening shot, obviously we have Ray like doing this incredible, like backwards leap as, you know, to avoid this ship that's flying at her was freaking awesome set piece. Um, uh, then we get, you know, reveal that Billy D Williams is back as Lando, um, flying the millennium Falcon alongside Chewbacca, which is going to be awesome. We got Palpatine who is returning. Obviously you hear his laugh at the end of the trailer. And then, you know, the title, obviously the, the rise of Skywalker, has a lot of people talking about what does this mean in terms of, you know, what we learned about Ray's family history in The Last Jedi. You know, personally, I'm someone who hopes that they do as little to change that as possible. And J.J. Abrams has made some comments saying, well, we're going to honor what happened in The Last Jedi, but also there's more to the story, which I'm intrigued to see what he means by that. And I hope that The Rise of Skywalker doesn't play into that part of it personally but it's obviously a trailer and a title that are going to get a ton of people talking oh yeah definitely for sure i think that you know whenever a trailer opens with 20 seconds of heavy breathing you know it's got me instantly (laughs) which is exactly what this trailer does and then to your point it segues into that scene where uh ray jumps the ship and that's not off she jumps off the ship she jumps over it i think there's a lot of questions about whose ship it is because it doesn't look like kylo's And, and then, of course, and then uh, but the second half of the trailer is, you know, a montage of different scenes. Looks like Oscar Isaac is going to be playing a more prominent role, which is something that I'm excited mm-hmm. about. I love Oscar Isaac. I've always wanted more of Poe in the in the in this new trilogy so far. And then you also have, of course, you get a shot of Kylo Ren, who's doing, you know, going ham with his weird lightsaber yeah. that I still don't understand. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, just a we saw Finn as well. You get a yeah. shot at. I should say, yeah, you see Finn, you get a shot of Leia as well, which I assume is, I think, I've heard that that's archival footage yeah. from shots from The Force Awakens, which they're putting, I don't know if they're putting that into the trailer uh, only, or if they're working that into the movie somehow. They did say that they weren't going to do the same sort of capture CG work that they did in Rogue One, so we're not going to be getting extensive Leia scenes, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plot thread develops, since, of course, Carrie Fisher uh, passed away two years ago. Uh, or is it? Yeah, two years ago, almost. Well, I guess a year and a half. Twenty sixteen, right? Or twenty seventeen? Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with her. It, obviously, I think a lot of the plot development from that point will be off screen, of course, because they, they there's just so much, there's only so much that they can do, and and so yeah, so we'll we'll see what happens. I'm very intrigued. I thought this trailer was a good trailer. I share your concerns about what the title means. Uh, I've heard some theories that it could uh, that could be the next. Uh, by the end of this movie, the Jedi don't exist anymore and the Skywalker are just the new Jedi, which would be interesting. Um, uh, that's a theory that I've heard, but I am not sure. I'm not sure yet. And then, of course, that the Palpatine laugh at the end. What does that mean? Yeah, I think that's a big question mark. Uh, no, 
the dead the dead don't die it seems like <laughs> darth maul's back yeah but yeah i mean this movie's gonna be awesome and i can't wait yeah absolutely scott well i think that will just about do it for episode 39 of some like it scott scott do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today I guess I don't, um, you know, all right, screw you under, under <laughs> the silver lake is awesome. Uh, please give it some love, even though everything from here on out for the next couple of weeks is going to be, uh, Avengers. Yeah, that's right. Next two weeks going to be Avengers and then detective Pikachu. So it's going to be a real fun time. Yeah. Are you by chance excited for detective Pikachu? I, I was just wondering. Scott, I know I've, I'm, I'm holding my cards pretty <laughs> close to my chest on this one, but I am excited about detective Pikachu. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I know that comes as a surprise to you. I have said, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I have said that I think this could be the best video game movie of all time. Wow, uh, high bar. Your sarcasm reigns supreme. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because as, as you know, a lot of people may not know that Detective Pikachu is not just an adaptation of you know Pokemon, you know Red, Blue, Yellow, etc. This it's actually a, Detective Pikachu is actually a game that that came out uh, about thirteen months ago. It came out, I mean, in the U.S. it came out thirteen months ago. I should say, I'm sure in Japan it came out way before that. But yeah. I'm excited about it. I don't know if anyone knows that, but I am. <laughs> All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast, which is at Media Plug Pods. And we'd love it if you gave us a follow over there. And we'd love it even more if you checked out our podcast Patreon page. That's at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing uh, or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much even if you only contributed at that one dollar level where you get the episodes early again that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check it out for yourself pick the tier that's right for you if you choose not to support us over on patreon that's totally fine you can still find us on apple Podcasts and on podbean where we'd also appreciate if you rated and reviewed us subscribed shared gave us your thoughts on the podcast all that jazz so that we can uh, increase some user engagement get to a broader audience all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies Next week, we'll be back with, as Scott mentioned, the biggest movie release of 2019 so far. And honestly, Scott, maybe of 2019 period. I think it could end up surpassing Star Wars. Maybe of all time. Biggest movie uh, (laughs) release of the year when all is said and done. And that's, of course, Avengers Endgame. So not only are we going to be back next week with our review, but then the following week, we're still going to be talking about Avengers Endgame in the form of an MCU retrospective that we're going to be doing as uh, as our episode for that week. But for now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Whatever it takes.